We're in Genesis chapter 43. I need to make a confession to you. I've never been to what in our culture is called therapy. This is pretty common. I don't think many of us here have been to therapy. And most of us, if not all of us, have never been to family therapy either. And if you're like me, you know you need therapy. And more often than not, so does your family. And this includes this family as well. But we can rejoice because we've actually been to therapy, even to family therapy. We have the great high physician at work in our lives at every moment. And when we come together as a family under the word, we are blessed to have family therapy happen here to us as well. And our chapter from today, chapter 43, reveals how the Lord uses the truth of Romans 8.28 in family therapy. How he works all things for the good. Not just for the good of you, but how he is using the exact same thing for the good of your brother and many others that are in our family at the same time. He uses his spirit alongside of his word, in conjunction with one of his most amazing created things, time, his spirit, working with the word and using time. This is his therapy method, and this is his therapy formula. And I want you to hang on to this formula. You're going to need it. So the Spirit is living inside of us at this very moment, if you are of Him. If He has regenerated your heart, then His Spirit, the Spirit, God the Spirit, one of the members of the Trinity, actually occupies you. And we know that God is a relational God. We know this because of how He operates within the Trinity. The three members of the Trinity all working together, talking, enjoying, working to bring glory to one another. And because God is a relational God, he created his creation to be relational as well. Animals, insects, they are all created to function within relations with others within their species. And as magnus opus, us, us humans, we function not just within relations within ourselves, but also within relationship with other members of his created realm. This is important to understand why God doesn't just overpower you when you're saved. You may not like hearing this, but you are possessed. You're not your own. You have never been your own. You are either of Satan, if you are not of God, or you are of God. And if you are saved, God purchased you. And we, in our American mentality, don't like to think of ourselves in this way. But God is very clear that this is how he sees us. 
1 Corinthians 3.23 tells us that. Psalm 74.2 does. Revelation 5.9. And in Acts 20, verse 28, we read, Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the, to the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then personally, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And that therefore is there for a reason. This is the reason why he does not overpower you. Why he doesn't short-circuit your self-determination, but in fact, truly gives you free will. He desires a relationship with you. Not a make-believe one, not a fabricated one, and not a forced one. This is why he doesn't turn you into a robot that just does his will. This is why you are allowed to remain you. Even though the creator of the universe now inhabits you and owns you. You have been given the ability to know and to love God. You have been given the ability to see the truth of his word because he is living inside of you. And now you have been given the ability to choose between good and bad. And he desires a relationship with you. And this is where your personal responsibility comes in. Because it's in that choosing, it's in that choosing that that demonstrates your personal responsibility. And this, this is where we are given the ability to bring glory to God. And this is why we need therapy, personal therapy, and family therapy. And the means that God does that therapy by using that formula I spoke about. The Spirit, magnifying the Word, and then using time. And this is why we need to be aware of a couple of dangers in our lives. Because one of the issues that we face when reading the Word of God is that it, like all written books, is two-dimensional. It's flat. It's black and white. And we like color. We like dimension. We like backdrops. And rightly so, because God has created his realm in color, in dimension, and with stunning backdrops. So it's no wonder that when we come to the word that is two-dimensional, black and white, that there's often this temptation to color in the word of God. And truthfully, there's nothing wrong with when we read the Bible. Imagining the scenery in color coloring it that way because the oceans were the same then as they are now the sky was the same color then as it is now the clouds were the same color then as they are now same with the stars so we'll go ahead color in the backdrop of scripture when reading it that way but that's not the issue that i'm wanting you to be aware of the issue i'm wanting you to be aware of to address in our hearts is very often we desire and we even do color in the word of god with the colors of our emotions 
to color in the Word of God using the colors and the backdrops of our error, our physical placement in the world. As an example, there are many of us, when we think of the historical Jesus, we see him in our mind as that white man that resembles Chris Hemsworth. Totally inaccurate. And then there's another issue that we are faced to deal with in the Word of God. It's that thing that we get hung, so hung up on called time. Our world is obsessed with time. We live our life by the clock. And we think that the clock actually ticks only because we are here. That it actually ticks for me. And at the same time, we fight the clock. We desire to turn back the hands of that clock. We desire to turn back the hands of time. We desire to live in our glory days, whatever that is. And if we're being honest with ourselves, most of those things that we're nostalgic about, most of those things that we did in our glory days, those are things that we should not glory in. And the more that, more and more though, that we desire to fight that clock, and in our exaltation of youth and the fear of getting older, saints, that's nothing more than sin. We were created to live with the Lord forever, but we were never created eternal which is why there is the tree of life in the garden. But if Adam had remained in that family, if he would have had, he would have had access to that tree forever. He would have been able to remain in constant relationship with God. But he didn't. He chose not to glorify God. He chose to glorify himself, and he died. And now we all age. And we are all faced with the consequences of sin by aging. Aging is nothing more than a reminder of our need for God. And we fight that. But having said that, aging is also associated with wisdom and honor in the word. Listen to how we are to view our life with the Lord. Psalm 92, verses 12 through 15. The righteous man will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of Yahweh. They will flourish in the courts of God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be rich and fresh to declare that Yahweh is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Or... How about Job 12.12? 12? Wisdom is with the aged men. With long life is discernment. How about Proverbs 16.31? Gray hair is a crown of beauty. It is found in the way of righteousness. And how many of us fight that? And again, Proverbs 20.29. 20, the honor of young men is their strength, and the majesty of old men is their gray hair. How about Ecclesiastes 7.10, which tells us, don't say, why is that the former days were better than these? For it's not about wisdom. Oh, I'm sorry. For it is not from wisdom that you speak or ask about this. And then finally, Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Therefore, 
Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Time matters. And the Word of God rightly divided matters. And our right standing with God matters. And this is why we must engage our free will. That gift of God, being able to see Him, know Him, love Him, and the free will He gives us to then choose Him. This is our responsibility. And to defeat our old man, one of the tools that God uses is one of the three elements that he uses in therapy. We are given the word of God as our instruction and even our instructor. And in it, we see a second of those tools that he uses in therapy. Time. Our chapter from today is a great example of this. It opens with the word now. Now the famine was heavy in the land. That's verse 1. And don't forget that when the sons of Jacob left Egypt, they did so without Simeon. He stayed back in Egypt, a guest of Joseph. In our last chapter, we're told that soon after leaving Egypt on their way home, one of them found that the money for the food that they had bought was in his grocery cart. He'd been caught shoplifting. And the interesting thing is, They didn't turn around and go back. And then when the boys got home, they found that all of their money was in their bags. And they didn't return with that either. And also, because of that, they knew this. Simeon was dead. Which is why when Jacob saw their money in their bags, he said, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin? All these things are against me, chapter 42, verse 36. And very often, when we, when we open this chapter, we begin our thinking about the events that are told within this chapter. We do so without even thinking about when that now was. It was months later, perhaps a year or more later. But this is unusual in the Bible. It's not even unusual in the book of Genesis. Chapter 42 opened with that word, now. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? And that was seven years after the events of chapter 41. And chapter 41 opened with a now also. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. That now was the telling of two years of prison for Joseph in chapter 40. And chapter 40 opened with a now as well. Now it happened after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And that now happened months or maybe even a year or more after Joseph is thrown into the prison of his master because of his ruthless wife. And it goes on. Chapter 39 opens with a now. Now Joseph was brought down to Egypt. Those were months between Joseph also almost losing his life and then being sold as a slave and then resold in Egypt. And chapter 38 opens with a now. Chapter 37 opens with a now. Chapter 36 opens with a now. And the point that's being made to us is not that God is just trying to keep the story moving along. 
And for this reason, he just skips over the not important events in these people's lives. You know, those moments when he's not working all things together for their glory, he just includes the ones where he is. All the rest, those are just filler moments that don't really matter. That's not why. The point that we're supposed to glean from the nows of Genesis is this. It is those minutes, those hours, those days, and even those years that happen between one now and the next, that they are the very thing that is being used by God to reveal his faithfulness. And it's in those lost amounts of time, those minutes, those days, those months, and those years, they are what are used to produce character and steadfastness in us to conform us into the image of his son. If, and this is always an if, if we are using our free will to choose God and are being taught by his discipline, his therapy. It's the pressure cooker of time that the Lord uses to bring the dross of our hearts to rise to the top. Then it can be removed. This is not my opinion. This is the truth of Scripture. A truth that's revealed to us in Romans 1, or Romans 5, verses 1 through 6, which reads, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. That is one now. The now that we have been introduced to the God that is now the father and the lover and the owner of our immortal soul. And then Paul then tells us of the importance of the events, the time between that now and the eternal now that will happen on that great getting up day for us. And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proving character, proving character, hope. Hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out with our, within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Saints, does this describe you? Is this you? Have you had the love of God poured out and regenerating your heart, enabling you to be able to see that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Can you see that this is true? That you have sinned against God by not loving Him with all of your heart, mind, and strength. That you have sinned against an eternal God and should be justly punished by His glorious, holy wrath for that sin. And have you seen Christ, the bloodied, beaten, and wonderful, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God? Do you find your safety, your home, in His amazing grace, in the shedding of His blood for you? Have you confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that He is Lord? And have you proven 
that newness of life through obedience to your Lord by professing that Jesus is Lord, your Lord? And have you begged him for the honor of following him in his death, burial, and resurrection through the sacrament of baptism? If you have not, then you should be warned that every minute, every moment that you live outside of him, you are storing up more and more wrath for yourself as you defiantly, willfully disobey the God of your creation. But if this is you, if you're one of those that have been justified by, justified by faith, then the lessons from the nows in the word of God are for you. And God desires to use these nows, those months and years between each one of the chapters in your life. He desires that you think, that you use that three pounds of tissue between your ears for the original intent to reason, to think, to reason. God gave you a mind, a wonderfully tooled, an amazingly complex supercomputer in order that you can reason. And listen, listen, saints, to the compelling offer that you have been made, that you have been given by the Lord. Isaiah 1.18 Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Are you getting this? God, the creator of all things, the God of all eternity, is requesting that you, you, dialogue with him. That you and he do business together. He wants to reason with you. And listen to the thing that he wants to reason with you about. The thing that he wants you to use those three pounds of that supercomputer to reason through. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And if this doesn't send your mind, your heart, and your soul into shutdown mode, you really can't be reasoning because this is completely unreasonable. What God is saying to you is that even though I cannot stand in the presence of anything other than protect, per per perfection, and even though you, at your very core, are the very nature of evil, even those, those things are 100% completely true. He is going to. In fact, he already has made you holy. He has made you righteous. He has sanctified you. He has taken the unholy and he's made it Holy. This isn't a whitewashing. 
Our sins are so grievous, they can't be swept under the carpet. They can't just be forgotten about, forgiven. They have to be paid for. And they were. And there's therapy in that, verse, that Isaiah 1.18 verse. All the elements that God uses in his therapy are represented there. His spirit, the word, and time. Though your sins are like scarlet, that's one now. They will be as white as snow. And there is the other. And it's on this basis, because of this reasoning, that God desires that you do not color the Bible with the desires or your emotions. To color in the Word of God using the colors or backdrops of our error, our physical placement in the world, in the world, but to allow the reality of the Word to, of the salvation of God to color in our life. And this is the message of the New Covenant, the message that over and again we are told of in that New Testament. Listen to our, our brother Peter. Matter of fact, grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Two Peter 1. Simon Peter a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This letter was written to saints who knew the Old Covenant. They knew the book of Genesis and who were now facing their own nows. And to them... Peter wrote, and he opens this book with a prayer. Did you catch that prayer? Did you hear the prayer that he prayed for them? For those saints who were living at that time, those saints who were suffering persecution, hardship, famine, death, the thing that he prayed for those saints wasn't ease of life, a full belly, a warm, safe home. His prayer was for the thing that makes every moment, every hour, every day, and every year worth living, despite any pain, suffering, or even death. Jesus, our Lord. And then Peter explains how we are able to, lead, to live these minutes, these hours, these days, these months and years, and not just live, but how to thrive and how we are to gain wisdom from them, not just endure, but to bring glory to God. He says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that it is in the world by his lust. That's God's part. That's him giving you the right to be part of his family, the ability to love and obey him. And then beginning in verse 5, he starts speaking about our personal responsibility with the Lord. Verses 5 through 8. Now, 
Again, one of those nows. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this, in that passage, in those texts, we can find the men of Genesis 43 in that list. The men that are going through this family therapy session of chapter 43 of Genesis. That list, chapter, verses 5 through 8, they would describe Joseph. And this should be our goal. Not to be so much like Joseph, but to choose to be obedient, to choose to crawl up into the lap of our Heavenly Father and then just willfully choose to remain there. This is our personal responsibility with the Lord. This is our chief end, to love God and enjoy Him forever. And then Peter describes the brothers of Joseph and even their father, Jacob, as well, in verse 9. For if in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification for his former sins. Peter is not talking about losing your salvation. That's not what he's talking about at all. What, is he, is, what he is saying here is that you are responsible. You. You are responsible for the relationship that you have with your God. You cannot put that on him. The God that has made you white as snow. How you now live. The relationship that you now have with the Lord. That is on you. How you to engage, how you choose to engage with his body, how you choose to obey him. This is all on you. You cannot say, if God wanted me to obey, then he would make me obey. And if that is your heart, brother, I would say to you, you need to be scared. You may not know Christ. Peter goes on, verses 10 through 15. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been strengthened in the truth which is present within you. I consider it right as long as I am with you in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has indicated to me. And I will be diligent that any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. So Peter knew something about you and me. We, we live in the now. We are so short-sighted. We are so self-centered that we are very forgetful. 
we need to be constantly reminded and constantly have our minds and our hearts course corrected back to the Lord. He knew that we need to allow the word to color in our lives, allow the Lord to use time as the means to purify, to filter out all of the old self. We desperately need therapy. And our chapter today deals with family therapy that is happening back there, back in Canaan. Back to Genesis 43. And it happened when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. That father there, that's Jacob, Israel. He sent 10 of his boys to Egypt the last time, and they came back with food, but with only nine of his sons. That 10th son, Simeon, he's back in jail in Egypt. And when the nine came back, they told dear old dad how to get that son back. And as we're thinking through this, place yourself in the sandals of Simeon. He's in jail all this time, not free. And he must have been wondering, I wonder when my brother is going to get back here. Wondering, what in the world is taking so long? Not knowing anything about the money in the sacks or the brothers and the dad that have just written him off. And don't think for an instant that Simeon is any less important to God than any of these other brothers. And God left him there. And in our verses from today, we need to understand that what Jacob is doing is he's not telling the boys, go back now and get Simeon out of jail. That's not his concern. He wants food. But he seems to have forgotten that there's this little issue that his sons had been already warned him about, which brings us to verses 3 through 5. Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. They were told, Don't come back without Benjamin, otherwise Simeon would never be freed, and they would never be allowed to trade for food ever again. Verse 4, if you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we won't go down. For the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. It just seems like dad didn't get it. He's just seemingly conveniently forgetting about those stipulations that were made to them ever to be allowed back into Egypt. And once again, he proves where his heart is at at this moment, why he needs this family therapy. Verse 6, then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? Can you be any more self-centered than that? I mean, can you have any more of a selfish, narcissistic attitude than thinking that every conversation that ever happens is about you? And there's another reason that he needs therapy. Oh, Jacob, he's finding his hope and his happiness in something other than God. He's loving that gift more than the gift giver. He's finding himself not in his Savior, but in his children. And this can still be an issue. 
And it's an issue with him, not because he loves his youngest son more than the others. That's not the issue. The issue is that he loves his son more than he does the Lord. As witnessed by that poor me statement that he just made. And saints, we still have to this day the danger of loving our children. The God gives us more than the gift giver. And we prove that this is a danger very often by living our lives for him. I'm sorry, for them and not him. And so what we're being given the privilege of setting in on here is a family therapy session that the Lord is conducting. He has, God has created the problem at hand. He is to blame for the severe famine in the land. He's to blame for Simeon being in prison. He's to blame for the brothers having to deal with the sins of their youth and how they treated their brother Joseph. In fact, he's even to blame for the fact that there's 12 children within this family. All of this is the hand of God in the life of this man, Jacob, and every one of these other men here. And God is doing this. And he's doing this for the good of Jacob, for Joseph, for Simeon, and for all the other brothers as well. And he's doing this for the good of every redeemed person who has ever been born after them. And then we witness the results of the therapy session that have already occurred in the lives of these men next, in verses 7 through 10. But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our kin, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we told him concerning these things. Could we have possibly known that he would say, Bring your brothers to us? Then Judah said to his father Israel, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be the guarantee for him. From my hand you may require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then I shall bear the sin before you all my days. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. First, the brothers, first, what we see here is the brothers, for the first time, they're supporting and defending each other. There's no more rivalry happening here. And in fact, there's no rivalry happening at all within the brothers. The command was given to the nine brothers, and Judah responded to the command. And when he's lashed out by his dad, all his brothers come in to his defense. Reuben, the oldest, had already told Jacob that he would place his own children's lives as collateral in returning to get Simeon. Back in chapter 42, verse 37, Reuben at that point still had held out hope for Simeon, that he was still alive, and that by returning the money in, the sacks of, in their sacks and Benjamin in tow, that he would be released. And now... It's not Reuben who puts up other people's lives as collateral. It's Judah. It's Judah who responds now to the command by dad. And he doesn't put up the collateral of his own kids' lives. He put up, puts up his own life as collateral. And there's something else that we all need to take notice of here, especially you youngsters, young men and women here. These men... And they were men, 
They weren't children. They honored their father. They obeyed their father. So much so that they didn't go back to get Simeon on their own. In fact, they didn't go back at all until their dad brings up the reality that they all knew. They all knew that they were running out of food, and they all had children. And yet none of them, none of them dishonored their father. Again, like I said, remember, it's not just them that's facing this famine. It's their wives and their children. And still they obeyed their father. They didn't press the issue of going back to Egypt. This is honoring your father. This is obeying. Verse 11, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and bring them down to the man as a present, a little balm, a little honey, aromatic gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was, brought, that was put back in the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. And take your brother also and arise. Return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion before the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. So the men took his present, and they took double their money and hand and Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Through this therapy, the true hope within Jacob is being rekindled. God is using the suffering of the famine, the suffering of the loss of his children, to bring him back to the reality of where his hope is truly found. For the first time in a long time, he acknowledges God and trusts in him, which is why he can so confidently say that if I'm bereaved of my children, then so be it. So off they go, back down to Egypt, which brings us to verses 16 through 25. Then Joseph saw Benjamin with them and said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and prepare it, for the men are to eat with me at noon. So the man did, as Joseph said, and brought them into Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we were being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. And they said to him, oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. And it happened when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks. And behold, each man's money was in the mouth of our sack, our money in full. So we brought it back to your hand. We've also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We don't know who put the money in our sacks. And he said, verse 23, Be well. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Your money has come to me. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the men brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet and they gave their donkeys fodder. Fodder. So they repaired the present for Joseph coming at noon, for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. 
Then Joseph came home, and they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand, and bowed down to the ground before him. Simeon must not have been the only one wondering where the brothers were. Joseph, the man that God was using as the instrument for the testing of these brothers, he had been wondering about them as well. We're never told how Simeon was treated during that time, but it would seem that Joseph, Joseph had remained distant from him, never revealing his true identity to him. And it's been a while since the brothers left. And that Joseph knows of their return, when they return, just proves just how diligent he was in the oversight of this country. And verse 23, look at verse 23. It's another one of those just bombshell verses that the Lord just drops. What the servant of Joseph tells these men is not just that the God of their father was the one that did this. The actual terminology, what he actually told them is that the God of your fathers has done this. Was he redeemed? Was he converted and knew God? We don't know. We can't know. But what we do know is that he understood that in his obedience to his master, doing his master's bidding, that was the hand of God in these men's lives. And this is a lesson that many here in our congregation would well, do well to understand. How often do any of us going about our day, following the commands of our bosses? How often do we ever think like this man did? How many of us actually believe the word, that do believe the word, understand that, that God is sovereign over all things? How many of us actually reason enough to understand that when we obey our masters and do their will, that we, are the instruments that God is using to bring about Romans 8.28. This unnamed servant seems to understand that. And then verse 27 proves the point that was hinted at in our last chapter. Joseph wasn't nostalgic. He was content with the life that God had given to him there. Because he never in those seven years of plenty, or even in the years of famine, that had occurred since then, he never once had reached out to dear old dad. Did he just not care? This can't be the case. We know this because of the manner in which he cares for his father in the coming chapters. But he, and that the heart, and the heart that the Lord had given to him, because of the lessons learned through the discipline of the Lord, he had learned to be content. He had found his joy in his, in his happiness in the what the Lord has for him where he is and what he's being called to do now. He's not living in the past, in the glory days. And he's not living for the future either when I finally can return, retire and have my best life ever. He's not living in the maybe. He has no idea about the father that he has loved so much in his youth. That father that he had been ripped away from, verses 27 through 29. And he, Joseph, asked them about their, the well-being 
about their well-being and said, Is your old father well, of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down and prostrated themselves. And he lifted his eyes, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother, of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. He's not a cold-hearted monster either. Again, don't color this account with our colors. He, Joseph, is speaking to these men through a translator still. And we have to wonder when we think about this, didn't that translator not know that that Joseph could speak Hebrew? Did no one seem to remember that this man... The vice regent of Egypt was himself a former Hebrew slave. But it was through a translator that this conversation was happening both ways. And verse 30 is given to us to understand that although Joseph didn't reach out to his family, when he could have, even though he wasn't nostalgic, this didn't mean that he didn't care, that he didn't just not love his family. It just means that he loved God more. Verse 30, and Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred with compassion over his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. Which then brings us to the conclusion of our chapter, verses 31 through 34. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, set the meal. So they set the meal for him by himself, and for them by themselves, and for the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they were seated before him, and the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at each other in astonishment. And he took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times greater than any of theirs. So they feasted, and they drank freely with him. And for the first time ever, The brothers are all together with no animosity among them. The bitterness, the hatred that the brothers had in their hearts towards their brother brother Joseph was gone. The resentment over being told that they would bow down, the thing that they just have done and serve him was forgotten. All these wounds had been healed by the great physician. Saints, I'm going to ask you to think about this once again. Just think about this. Since God is God, couldn't he have brought all this healing earlier? Couldn't he have just prevented all this ugliness from happening in the first place? Yes. But as I said from the beginning of this sermon, since God is a relational God, since God is love, in his love, he's redeemed you, just as he did these men. And he's given you a heart to love him, as he did to all these men. And then he uses his spirit alongside of his word with that tool of time to conform these men 
to being more like His only begotten Son. Saints, if you're wondering, what is going on in my life? It's just doing the same thing in you and in me. We're given this chapter. We're, we're given the privilege of being allowed to sit in on this family therapy session in order to recognize our own therapy. The therapy of the Spirit, working through the Word and using time as the instrument to prove to us that He God is truly working all things together for our good. Has your life been hard? So were the lives of these men. Has your life been filled with pain, with loss, suffering? So had these men's. But can you not, as you sit there, using that three-pound supercomputer between your ears, as you sit there, survey the years of your life. And can you not see that it was the trials, it was through the tears, through the years of wondering, what is going on? Can you now not look back and see that the now of your life today is all because of the events that have, ta have taken place in the past? God has proven himself faithful to himself in conforming you more into the image of his son. Saints, we will all go through these therapy sessions with the Lord. And again, this is why we are given this section of scripture. All of these men are of the tribe of Israel. They are all the sons of Israel. They will all be used to form the nation of Israel. And they all went through the therapy session with the Lord. But not all of them learned through these sessions. Think about that. And not all of them looked forward to these sessions either. Think about that. Again, God is love. And in his love, he has redeemed you for his glory. And it is now within your ability to now Choose to bring glory to God by seeing Him as wonderful. It's, with, it's within your ability to actually look forward to the therapy sessions of the Lord, to willingly, happily partake and even join in on the family, family therapy sessions that occur when this family is together. This is why coming together under the common preached word of God is important. Why you need to be here. Because we are all being worked on by the Lord together here. And saints, 
Because Jesus has made you a saint. Saint Noah. Saint Bradley. Because Jesus has made you a saint, you have the right and you have the ability to crawl into the lap of your Father. And this is how we glorify God. By enjoying Him forever. And this is your responsibility. God trusts you with your relationship with the Lord. And how you view your salvation, how you view your Savior, this will be evidenced by your obedience to His Word. It just will. You will never be able to blame Him if you are estranged from Him. You will never be able to point an accusing finger at God and say, you did not do enough if He seems distant to you or unloving. He's already given you everything. He's already given me everything. Listen again to what he has given to us. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's already done this. You have the ability to know. You have the ability to experience. And saints, if I were to ask you, when were you the closest to Christ? When in your life do you feel like, I knew the Lord? If you cannot say, it's today. That's not him. It's you. Saints, choose wisely. Let's pray.